Uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if these people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Well, thanks, Kelly, and hi again. Um, 
it was a bit of a strange week actually waiting for what we thought would be the projector screen arriving Wednesday, no, Thursday, no, Friday, no. Um, still not here, obviously. Uh, hopefully we're here next week. But what was good was having these Bibles arrive, actually unexpectedly, I had thought they'd be a few weeks away uh, yet. Um, I really like them. They're uh, brand new, straight out, of the, uh, straight out of the box today. Um, and as I was, you know, kind of thinking about the screen not being here, it'd be nice to have all our bits and pieces. It felt like, yeah, we're a church now. We've got Bibles on the, on the chairs. It's a good thing. Um, great, by the way, to keep those Bibles open to the passage that Kelly just read for us. We'll be spending a bit of time looking at that passage together. And it struck me as, you know, I was reading this passage in our brand new Bibles, um, these, these Bibles have a really nice, neat little gold cross on them. I don't know if you noticed that on the front, uh, front cover. A lot of Bibles have that. Uh, it struck me that well, these crosses we see everywhere, uh, we're so used to and familiar with, the, the brand uh, we have as Christians, um, you know, most churches don't meet in an old factory, they meet in a building with crosses, beautiful crosses, ornate crosses all around them, uh, slapped on the side of the buildings often, uh, yeah, maybe lit up in neon lights. Uh, many Christians here today, uh, perhaps you'll have a, a, a necklace with a, a cross on it or a tattoo or something like that. Um, that's all fine, that's all good, I'm not about to you know, make fun of this as a practice. It's just that you know, the cross um, is the symbol, uh, it's the symbol, isn't it, that reminds us uh, what's at the core of our, our identity as Christians, uh, the core of what we believe. Uh, and there's, I think, nothing at all wrong with having crosses everywhere if it helps us uh, remember uh, what happens on the cross. I guess the thing is for me, and seeing such a neat, shiny cross on the front cover of the Bible, I think it struck me that we can become very familiar uh, with this symbol, uh, and we can sort of gloss over the power of the cross and what it represents. You have, a look at, you, know, you have a look at that cross in the front of your Bible, it's, it's a very neat, symmetrical, it's gold, it's shiny, it looks really good, doesn't it? It's a nice little symbol. Uh, even if you um, come across a crucifix, so, you know, one with a figure of Jesus on the cross, it's a bit more confronting, a bit less neat. Uh, if you Google that, you see most of those crucifixes are very sedate and peaceful-looking Jesus. His head's uh, sort of gently resting. You can Google it later to have a look. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. He's not grimacing, uh, not crying out in agony and screaming in pain. After all, who'd want to look at that or have that in their house? Again, I think having a cross is, is a totally fine thing to do. I'm just pointing out it's, it's a weird brand to have, isn't it, as Christians? It's weird when you think about it. Uh, in the Roman world, crucifixion was the pinnacle. It was the top of the, top of the game, top of the heap, uh, in the science of torturing people to death. Uh, most regular people would have witnessed a crucifixion. It happened a fair bit. Uh, there's a famous example, um, Spartacus, the slave, you might have heard of him, he mounted a rebellion. Uh, it didn't end well. It ended with 6,000 slaves crucified uh, along a major highway. 6,000 people on crosses. It's one way to make your point, I guess. Um, the spectacle of crucifixion was so gruesome and shameful that polite Romans actually wouldn't bring it up in conversation. You don't talk about it. You certainly wouldn't have a massive cross slapped to the side of your building you meet in. You wouldn't wear a nice little cross around your neck in the Roman era. It's, it's weird. It's a horrible kind of thing to do. So, like, I apologize for this imagery I'm about to use, but I kind of want to make the point of the emotional impact of, you know, what this would be like if a Roman saw a big cross on the side of a building, like a church. I think it would be the same reaction today if churches, instead of putting a cross up, something like stapled dead puppies to the side of their building. It's, it's a weird and disgusting and distasteful thing to do. Like, what's wrong with you people? You're sick. 
perhaps instead of a nice little uh, piece of jewellery, um, something like a noose or an electric chair would have uh, hung around the neck, would have that same kind of effect as people see it. And so when you think about it like that, you realise it's no wonder at all that the first Christians, as they started sharing the good news about Jesus and Him dying on the cross for our sins, it's no wonder it didn't usually go down very well. Um, Paul the Apostle sums it up, uh, he says, We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. They'd seen crucifixions. Kings don't die like that. See, crucifixion, is, it's so confronting, it's so in your face, uh, it's disturbing. The sounds, the agony of death, uh, the sight that would kind of just, I'm sure, sear itself and stick with you for the rest of your life, just etched into your mind. Even the smell, I'm sure, the stench of death. There's nothing clean or neat or shiny at all about crucifixion. It's striking then that Luke, who wrote the part of the Bible we're looking at today, he, he doesn't really dwell on the details of crucifixion, does he? That might be because he knew his original audience knew it too well, he didn't need to explain what's happening. Just simply in verse 33, he says, When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. That's it. Now, this is uh, the key moment in Luke's story. It's the key moment in the Bible. In fact, it's probably, I think, the key moment in all of history. God the Son is crucified. And yet, as Luke gets us to this critical moment, he just tells us bits and pieces about Jesus on the cross, more about what he says, actually, than what he looks like or what he's feeling. I think what's going on here in this, in this sort of scene that Luke paints for us is if it were a movie, uh, the camera doesn't stay focused on Jesus on the cross that much. We know he's there, we can, we can see it, but, but the camera kind of pans around. It, it focuses on the other people from one group to another, looking at their reactions. I think Luke's helping us see, alongside this critical moment in history, he wants us to see how people reacted and responded to this event. Because just as important as what happens with Jesus on that cross is our response to the moment. See, I think the cross reveals what kind of king and what kind of saviour Jesus is. But for us, I, I think the cross also exposes us and our reactions as we behold Jesus on the cross, we reflect on what that event means. That, it, it's well worth reflecting on, isn't it? So, in our passage, we have a whole range of reactions, don't we? Um, so, let's just have a look at a few of them. I'm going to start here with Simon of Cyrene in verse 26. Um, he's not really given any choice in the matter, is he? Uh, he's seized by soldiers and he's given the grisly task of uh, following behind a man condemned to die, carrying uh, his cross for him. It's interesting, though, like a few chapters back in Luke, Jesus had told his disciples that if we want to follow him, well... <laughs> His disciples need to take up their cross and follow Him. Jesus' mission has always been about the cross, and the, the Christian life is actually the life of the cross. It's not about glory and comfort, but about humility and service and sacrifice. Just in this moment, all of Jesus' actual close disciples, they're nowhere to be seen, they fled. And so this random guy, Simon of Cyrene, is plucked from nowhere, and he ends up literally being that disciple following Jesus with a cross. The perfect picture of us, for us of what discipleship looks like. Now, some of us here uh, might actually be able to identify quite well with Simon. 
Now, perhaps you've been kind of quietly minding your own business, uh, just going about life. Like Simon here was going the opposite direction. He was coming in from outside the city uh, as the procession was going out. He's got nothing to do with this. He's, he's just caught up in the wrong place, wrong time. Perhaps that's a bit like for you. Uh, for whatever reason, as you've been minding your own business, someone's dragged you along to church or uh, perhaps just put Jesus on the agenda in a way you weren't expecting. Uh, perhaps a parent has been bringing you along to church. Uh, and it's just something you've always had to do as a family. It's not something you've chosen for yourself, but here you are. Or maybe a friend or a spouse uh, has sort of brought Jesus into your orbit all of a sudden. And now following Jesus, you're working out, it's costly. <laughs> it comes with a cross. So it's easy to imagine that Simon, um, he couldn't, get, couldn't wait to get away from this whole ordeal, right? Like he probably uh, can't wait to get back to Cyrene, wherever that is. Uh, wash my hands, get on with life, be done with this whole disgusting crucifixion thing. Have a think about this, though. Uh, Luke, the author, he could have just said, the soldiers grabbed this random guy to carry the cross. Actually, he could have not even mentioned it. Who cares? Why does he tell us, not just that this happened, but the name and the place this guy's from? It's not just a random guy. It's Simon of Cyrene. Why that detail? I guess it could be that Luke has a great concern for historical accuracy, and that's just, you know, just what happened, so he tells us. That could be it. Now, no one knows for sure, so there is some speculation here, but it seems very likely to me and to many others that Luke tells us about Simon and his name and where he's from because Simon went on to become a well-known Christian. So that Luke's first readers, the people Luke's writing this book for, they might know Simon. They might have at least heard of him as a leader in the church or a key disciple in those first few years of the church. If that's true, I think it tells us that Simon probably stuck around. He saw the crucifixion and he was drawn to Jesus, perhaps because of how he died in such a dignified kind of way. Or maybe even Simon got to meet the risen Jesus a few days later, maybe, maybe both those things. And so perhaps if you can identify uh, with Simon, you're sort of being roped into the Jesus story, or not of your own choosing, um, especially today, if you, you don't also consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus at this point, uh, firstly, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we love having uh, people coming, uh, whether the Roman guards have dragged you along to, to this morning or not. It's great to have you here uh, checking these things out with us. Um, secondly, if that's you, uh, please be encouraged by Simon's likely conversion story. Uh, carrying a cross behind Jesus and sharing in his shame, for some reason it didn't put him off. Seeing Jesus crucified in, in pitiful and degrading circumstances, that didn't put him off either. Perhaps, in fact, it all convinced him that there is something so unique and so special about this guy that I should find out more. And we hope that you can stick around with us and do that too. Okay, so that, that's Simon. How about then uh, the big group of people in verse 27, uh, the mourning and wailing women who are with them? Uh, Jesus talks to me, he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. So it tells us these women, they're, they're locals to Jerusalem. They're not like most of Jesus' followers who have come from uh, the countryside out in Galilee or beyond. So maybe these women know a fair bit about Jesus. He's been, a bit of a, he's been making a big stir. Uh, and they're seemingly distraught that injustice is being carried out. This nice young man uh, is off to die. There might be a mix of professional mourners in there as well. That seemed to happen. But this is the right response, isn't it, to seeing uh, the crucifixion uh, on its way? And grief and mourning as a good man goes to die unjustly. Now, notice what Jesus does. He, he, at this point, is probably near exhaustion. 
uh, after being beaten and flogged. Uh, I mean, he's a carpenter, right? He's used to carrying around heavy chunks of wood, but he, he can't carry his own cross. He tells us he's struggling. And so in this moment, he uses his precious breath and his energy to, to speak one last time to the women in the crowd. These good people sad about his death. Verse 28. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Just be a couple days. I'll be back. It's fine. Feel good. Doesn't say that, does he? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, this is a stunning moment, I think. Uh, With his last public speech, he tells his own funeral procession to mourn for themselves. It's startling, isn't it? And why would he do that? Well, Jesus here points them to a future time of disaster, a time of God's judgment. His point he goes on to make, I think it's, uh, where is it, sorry, I lost my spot, Uh, verse 31, about the trees being green and dry. Uh, His point there seems to be, if this is how Jerusalem treats God's own son, their hearts are certainly not going to be prepared for that day, the day of God's judgment. So in great kindness and with compassion, Jesus speaks to those most likely to listen. He says, spare yourself from that terrible day. See, the theme of God's judgment hangs very large over this passage. As it turns out, about 35 years after this event in AD 70, uh, Jerusalem and its temple was completely destroyed by the Romans, torn down. It was violent and there was an unbelievable slaughter. Um, history actually suggests that the Christians who were living in Jerusalem, uh, they knew this, this, these words of Jesus. They knew He'd warned of this great day. And they fled Jerusalem as the Romans were on their way. They, Christians were generally spared and were able to spread the gospel further, uh, knowing that Jesus had warned them. But ultimately, uh, the rest of Jesus' teaching points out, it's not just that day He was speaking of, there is still a day to come for all of us, where we will each stand before God, our judge when we're faced up with His holiness and made aware of our own shortcomings, I suspect we'd rather sort of crawl up in the fetal position and have hills and mountains fall on top of us and cover us from His holiness. And the way that we'll prepare for that day, as we see in a moment, is like the Christians who fled from Jerusalem, it's to flee, but this time, is to flee to Jesus, to flee to Jesus. Uh, this, this whole business of the cross is all about saving us from that day. And so, if you can relate with these women, you know, we admire Jesus, uh, we think He's a great and wonderful teacher, uh, we can imagine our own tears on that day if we were there. Uh, we, like them, are able to truly mourn injustice in this world. Uh, we, we're, I think we're all like that in many ways. But sometimes we might find that the thought of God's judgment and His uh, bringing judgment on our world, it, it, it can be too much to swallow. Uh, we don't like to think about it. Yet the urgent message that Jesus had, the final thing He turned to say to the crowds, is to point out, you need to be ready for this day of reckoning. He wants us to be spared of this day of God's judgment. So we need to be alert to that reality and flee to safety while it's still there. Which is to flee to the rugged cross of Jesus. And more on that in a second. For now, let's keep uh, moving as Luke keeps panning the camera around the cross and he brings us to the Roman soldiers. These men are under orders. They're just doing their job. 
Uh, I imagine this is not their first crucifixion. It's kind of part of the parcel, perhaps, for them. Can you imagine, though, the psychology of someone who this is their day job? Uh, how desensitized or lacking compassion would you actually have to be to, to get paid each month to do this? Just imagine, though, being one of these soldiers stationed in Jerusalem, and after what's a pretty normal week for you, you know, being a thug and basically a part time executioner, you finish up your week, and a few days later, you hear a rumor. Uh, you hear a rumor about the guy who claimed to be the king of the Jews. He apparently could do great miracles. He was crucified last week, but the rumor is he's alive again. Oh no, I killed that guy. I played dice for his clothes. I think I've still got his cloak somewhere. What if he comes for it? What will he do to me? Then you cast your mind back and you remember the oddest thing you've ever heard anyone say, especially someone that's on a cross. Like usually they're spitting and cursing and calling down the vengeance of the gods on you. But this guy, you remember, he said with all sincerity, looking at you, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you were that soldier, I reckon you'd want to go and find out more, wouldn't you? Uh, Find out more about this king. Perhaps try and meet him if these rumours about his resurrection are true. You might even get the chance to ask for his forgiveness for mocking him. Because that's what everyone was doing, wasn't it? See, I think clearly the people who come off worse, as Luke keeps panning the camera around, the people who come off worse in this whole account are the leaders and the rest of the people. Verse 35, they sneer at him, the, the rulers. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. See, these people are so glad to be rid of Jesus with his talk of his, you know, God's judgment and his claim to be their king. Good riddance. We don't have to worry about him anymore. And perhaps the final proof for them that this is no king, no unworthy of praise, is he's on a cross. He's not offering riches or power or anything to his followers. He's dying. It's pathetic. It's a sign, in fact, that God is judging this man. Although, in in the weeks after Jesus' resurrection, the church explodes in Jerusalem. Thousands of people are converted. Many of those converts, you would think, would also be in this crowd, mocking Jesus, but then, in hindsight, or uh, as they hear the apostles preaching, or perhaps meeting the risen Jesus for themselves, they realize what this is all about. It's not pathetic. It's the Passover lamb, the gift of God, shedding His blood to save those who trust Him. Despite the mocking of the crowd, that He was unable to save anyone, ironically, He was saving them by staying there. Where Luke, uh, I think, focuses the most attention for us, and where you could say the camera stays the longest, is the criminals and the discussion they have with Jesus. They're all at the end of their lives right on the doorstep of death. Uh, There couldn't be two more different and vivid uh, responses to Jesus, could there? Um, One criminal, he joins in the insults, mocking Jesus, perhaps sarcastically suggesting, oh, if you're so special, how about a bit of help over here? He's bitter at Jesus and and seemingly hardens towards him. Even on death's door, he's still not bowing his knee before his maker. The second criminal, second criminal is the polar opposite. He rebukes the other in verse 40. Don't you fear God? Since we're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. 
Now, how's that for an honest confession? There's no sort of self-justification there, just owning up to a life that deserved punishment. But he goes on to say, this man has done nothing wrong. In these final moments, these, this, this, these criminals, I think, model for us what fleeing to safety looks like, finding safety in the face of death and judgment. Safety from all that is very simple if we just do what this criminal does. He humbles himself before Jesus, says, I've done wrong. I've done wrong against God and against others. I deserve punishment. And then asking, Jesus, help me. Or his very simple and beautiful words, verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's simple and it's plain and it's just trust, isn't it? Trust because no one else can help him at this point. Jesus can and so he asked for that help. Even this criminal, by his own confession, he deserves crucifixion. That's a bad guy, right? He's done some bad things. Even he is offered salvation on that day. He hears those beautiful words of assurance from Jesus, verse 43. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, This criminal had uh, no time to go back and learn all the complicated parts of the Bible or uh, go to Bible study. He had no time to go and do good things, to to love his neighbour. He had no time to go and ask forgiveness and to reconcile with those he'd done wrong. That is, he didn't do anything good at all, did he? He does nothing at all to contribute to his own salvation. He is helpless, just like the rest of us, actually. These words of Jesus, these are a great assurance for each of us. This criminal, a man who deserved crucifixion because he trusted Jesus, will join him in paradise. These are sweet words of relief for all of us as we're convicted of our great need for God's forgiveness. No matter what we've done, all we need to do is turn to Jesus with confession and repentance. It's good news, isn't it? What we've seen all through this passage so far is, I think, that repeated and sarcastic and mocking tone about Jesus being the King, or, you know, the Messiah, it's the same kind of idea. Uh, The rulers and the soldiers and the criminals, they all bring it up, they all make fun of him. Because when you think about it, there is nothing more ridiculous than a king on a cross. Those two things just don't go together. In fact, in Rome, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Slaves and foreigners, no worries, uh, but kings, never. So Jesus is being executed as as a fraud, as a pretender. We've seen him, I think, act on the cross like a king. He's merciful, he's gracious, and he has dignity, I suppose. But even more than that, as Jesus gets to his final moments, this, this very horrible human scene that's happened countless times through the Roman history books, in verse 44, everything takes a real turn. And I think if you were standing there mocking Jesus, it would make you think twice. For Jesus, as every breath becomes an excruciating and exhausting event, those final moments, odd things start to happen, supernatural things. Darkness covers the land for three hours, the sun stops shining, and the massive curtain in the temple is torn in two, almost as if with unseen divine hands. It's like God Himself is commenting on what's going on here. 
Now, the curtain may mean or represents that uh, God is judging the temple and is departing Jerusalem. It could mean that there is a new access open to God that no longer requires a sacrificial system. Uh, could be both those things, I'm not sure. But darkness, that's clearly a sign, it's always been in the Bible, a sign of God's judgment, His disapproval over something. Which I think means that everywhere, everyone there on that day, they should have known this is not just a mere event. It's not just a thing that happened, sad as it is. It means something. The cross means something. In fact, I'd say the cross of Jesus gives meaning to everything. All through uh, Luke's book, his account of Jesus' life, he's shown us time and time again that Jesus is fulfilling long-standing promises and prophecies that God would send a king and that that king would save his people. He would carry their sins and he'd be crushed for God's people on their behalf. When you read the Old Testament, you realise the cross has so much meaning. Without the Old Testament behind it, it's just an event. But the rest of the history of the Bible and God's promises shows us this is a moment of great fulfilment. Today I thought, um, you know, we've got brand new Bibles on our pews. Let's use them a little bit. Um, I thought we could go back and look at one of those passages uh, some 700 years or so before Jesus, from Isaiah 53. Now, I've got my page number right. Isaiah 53 is 1,109. 1,109. Isaiah 53. I'll just read for us uh, this very famous part of the Old Testament, which points us, I think, and shows us the true meaning of the cross. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." Punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands." After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, made intercession for transgressors. Transgressors. Now, I thought it's worth going there because Isaiah is kind of like a commentary, really, for us on the meaning of the cross. Luke gives us the details. Isaiah, and there's also Psalm 22, there's a whole stack of passages you can go to that just fill out the richness and the fullness and the depth of the cross and what happens there. We could spend a lifetime mining the significance of this very moment. Today, though, the main thing we need to know is, I think, what the centurion realised, that this man is righteous. Jesus is God's suffering servant, the one Isaiah spoke about, who was pierced for our sins. He was pierced for us. Today, though, as interesting as it might be to think through uh, the many questions we might have about the crucifixion, like, you know, the classic one, how can an eternal being die? What kind of death is that? What happens to the Trinity at that point? What does Jesus even do between His death and His resurrection? This has scratched the surface on a few big questions you might have, and many more, I'm sure. Luke, at least, doesn't go there, does he? He just wants to make it very clear Jesus really died. He breathed His last. His death was witnessed by multitudes of people. But then in those last verses we read, like the details of where His body went, who saw it, who did what, what kind of tomb it was... Luke is very keen, like, there's so much detail, isn't it? It's a bit of a surprising amount of detail. Luke is keen for us to know, I think, with certainty, the resurrection happened. Jesus really was dead. He really went to the right tomb, and uh, all the details are there for us to be sure of these things. Now, we'll come to the resurrection next week, but I just wanted to pause briefly on this main point today. The point that Jesus really died. I think it tells us that Jesus experienced the full and whole range of human experience. Everything. He knows suffering. He knows loneliness. He knows despair. He even knows death, the most horrible of all experiences for any of us. I hope that very simple truth uh, will be very dear to each of us. Jesus knows suffering better than anyone. So in those moments, as we turn to Him, uh, when we ourselves are walking through grief or suffering, we can be 100% sure He understands, He knows, He's with us, He cares for us. He's not just a Saviour, He is not just a King, He's the Good Shepherd who cares for His sheep. And as the criminal on that cross knows and knows for sure now, Jesus has also conquered death. We have nothing at all to fear. More on that next week. For now, would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you again for the cross, for being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, having our sin laid on your shoulders as the perfect sacrifice. Please help each one of us see and know the true power of the cross. Help us not to get uh, over-familiar with the story or what it means. Instead, help us each come to your cross to praise you, to thank you, and to find forgiveness and help from you. Please help us to trust in the promise that you have conquered death, that you invite us to be with you in paradise, and help us now to live for that day. Amen.